Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is, what is today? Today is Thursday, January the 28th, 2021. This is episode 2814. It's a topic roundtable for 128.21. So what do we got on deck today? Well, last night was the great... The Greater Reset, I, pre I presented uh, a standalone presentation on small backyard livestock, and I was part of a panel on homesteading. And all the presenters were people that use animals. And uh, we triggered apparently a whole bunch of vegans in the uh, Greater Reset audience with that, and it's led to some of the stuff that we're going to talk about today. And, and kind of my lead story today is going to be why animals are essential to restoring large-scale ecosystems. And on top of it, why livestock, right? Even if it's not what we call livestock typically, like bison, but managing them as livestock are our only real choice today. And I think this is important because I said that last night, but I don't think I was clear. That, that doesn't mean that if you want to be a vegan or a vegetarian and not have animals, you can't actually build fertility at the backyard scale. You can. It's a lot more work, and you're going to have to plant 75% of the space to fertility plants and only 25% to human consumption. But that won't work on a broad scale. And I'll explain exactly why, so that you understand. I know most of the people in this audience have no problem with that. You generally accept it, but I, I think the logic behind why is really important. Next up, I want to talk about normalcy. This was an, another thing. I, I was amazed at some of the defeatism and the people tuning into the Greater Reset, just defeatists. Not normalcy is never coming back. It'll be the new normal forever. Do you understand what we're trying to do, what we're trying to teach you? I want to explain to you why normalcy is a choice. The new normal is also a choice, and I want to ask you how you're going to choose. I want to talk about going from sheep to prepared. Somebody asked me that on MeWe. I'm going to talk about why this is not ever going to be solved with things. Because the question came from an angle of, okay, you got this person, they're completely unprepared. What do they buy? Not how it was phrased, but it's where it went. It's the angle. It will never happen. You can buy all kinds of shit. You'll never be prepared. Doesn't matter. You'll never be prepared. It's mental. I'm going to talk about that today. I'm going to talk about my favorite methods to catch fish for food, sport, and survival. It depends. Of course. It always depends, right? How to think about reducing taxation with deductions as an entrepreneur. And I'm not just going to leave this with tax attorney and CPA. First of all, I want to clear some up even before we get into the subject. Tax attorneys are about corporate structuring. Tax attorneys are about, I'm going to do this thing. How do I legally protect my ass and best set myself up to do this thing? A tax attorney is somebody you use infrequently. And a CPA is somebody you use very frequently if they're worth having around anyway. Finding the right dog for your family. That was an oddball out of left field on me. I thought, yeah, I'll throw that in today. How to know you are looking at a Fnord before you know how to see Fnords. What's a Fnord? I'll tell you when we get there if you don't already know. Fans of Robert Anton Wilson, uh, Principal Discordia, Robert Shea, Luminous Trilogy, Schrodinger's Cat, you guys know what Fnords are. But can you see them? How fermented foods fit in with keto, paleo, etc.? I'll, I'll explain why Like fermented food, is it good or bad? It depends. 
And why anarchism and agorism <laughs> always win in the end? Didn't say that the individual always wins, but I'll tell you why the philosophy always wins in the end. And it's actually the greatest force for liberty that's ever existed or ever will exist in humanity's timeline. So many examples of it. You show me liberty actually advancing, and I will show you an, 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 an agorist or an anarchist or usually multiples of the same combined as part of it. Right down to the American Revolution. We will talk about all of that and more, but as we lead into our first story about animals being essential to restoring large-scale ecosystems, I want to start out with a quote of the day. This is by somebody you know. Many of you have met him in real life. You've certainly heard from him on the show, Nick Ferguson. And I realized I have never quoted Nick Ferguson, who's one of my best friends. Like, I don't know that I can tell you who my best friend is. Like, my buddy David, my buddy Nick. Like, there's, there's another list I could throw, like, another eight on there. And I don't know that any one of them is my best friend. They are my best friends, is, is a better way to look at it, I guess. And Nick, man, he's a great permaculturist. I consider him definitely a contemporary in the field. We've worked together on a lot of things, and I really never quoted Nick Ferguson, and that was just wrong. And it made me think of a time that Nick and I were together out in one of my fields, and there had been a great deal of work done there and that had taken off the little bit of vegetation there was, and we were spreading mostly ryegrass seed right before the rains would come for the spring. And we were talking about another person in permaculture that he's okay guy. But he's big on, well, you got to work with nature. you got to trust nature. And we were kind of talking about how this individual actually would have objected to the use of seed. And Nick popped off with this quote, and I loved it, and it applies to so many other instances. He said, working with nature is great, but you have to give nature something to work with. This ecosystem had been so damaged, so degraded, so eroded, and had so little left to it, it needed a kickstart. People screwed it up, And at the certain point of when we screw land up, only we can fix what we've done wrong. Now, letting the people who did the damage, the same individuals, tell you what the solution should be is probably not the right thing to do. Do you know who you, you look to to determine what to do? You look to nature. The forest is our teacher, in the words of Jeff Lawton. And we look at how the forest works. And the forest works through cycles, multiple cycles of life and death. And just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's not the right answer. So let's move into this concept of why it is essential that we use animals to restore large-scale ecosystems. And again, I, I want to start out with, can you take a half-acre backyard, make it extremely fertile, and never involve a single animal intentionally? Because there will be some wild animals and things like that that get involved. Yes, you can. And if you really want to grow like productive food, like you want to grow your own food as a vegan in that situation, you're not going to. You're going to end up relying on outside inputs, and because you're going to need to obtain protein and carbohydrates in large amounts from vegetative sources, you're going to eat soy, or you're going to eat lentils, or you're going to eat some form of bean, you're going to eat barley, you're going to eat wheat, and the stuff you're going to eat is going to be part of the problem that's causing the long, large-scale ecosystem degradation. Because you're not going to have enough land left to produce enough calories to live on. 
So you're going to feel like you're doing really great for the earth. You're going to go down to Piggly Wiggly and buy yourself, you know, your, I don't know, barley or your soybean or your lentils and see how wonderful that is. And you ignore the giant field monoculture to produce that thing. You're not going to do it. And you do not have sufficient human labor. The calories out in the labor will exceed the calories in from the food. It doesn't mean you can't grow some really fantastic, nutrient-dense food that way. And if that's what you want to do, I bless you. I honor your choice. The hard thing is, such people tend to never honor the choice that we omnivores make. But I'm going to explain to you why it's a moot point from a natural standpoint. Even though you can do that in a backyard, and even if I could give you a magic wand that would allow you to grow the super sweet potato that was blessed by all the gods and goddesses of, of myth and lore, that would be so nutrient-dense that you could actually make it work, and you could live off your backyard, it won't fix the broad-scale ecosystem. I know, says the uh, ecological warrior who's watched too many Disney movies, we'll just leave it all alone, and nature will fix the problem. In the words of one of my best friends, fellow permaculture teacher, one of the smartest people I know, working with nature is great, but you have to give nature something to work with. There are millions, I'm going to say it again, millions of acres in the United States that used to be fertile, productive, savanna lands. Plains and trees working together. Great plains, but with savanna ecosystems. It looks exactly like, or looked exactly like, much of what remains of the little bit that remains in Africa today. When I say savanna, you probably think Africa. There's more wilderness in the United States than there is in Africa. Our one country has more wilderness remaining than the entire continent of Africa. And wilderness is not always forest. But the amount of wilderness we lost exceeds the amount of wilderness we had. The world is not made up of a single ecosystem. Even a single ecosystem that's different across climate types. So obviously you're going to have differences between a northern climate, a temperate climate, an equatorial climate, and then you you know reverse back down the other side of the earth, right? The lower side. That's that's one variation, but we have multiple ecosystems. And one of the most critical key point ecosystems are plains-based ecosystems. And a plains-based ecosystem without trees cannot survive. It's a it's a funny thing. You have to kind of have both. They feed each other. And that means that the trees, since they will naturally advance, need something to maintain and pull back perennial advancement. So you need perennial grasses and forbs along with annual grasses and forbs. That's fine. And herbs and other things. But as woody perennials begin to advance, forest begins to advance. And forest doesn't belong everywhere. If it did, the world would have been covered in it before we screwed it up. It wasn't. And the most productive ecosystems on the planet, the ones that put the most carbon in the soil that are terrestrial, say that again, that are terrestrial, not marine-based, are savanna ecosystems. That's what they are. I, I didn't make it up. It's not my opinion. It is scientific fact. Actual science, not pseudoscience like you hear on TV all the time. Well, science is settled. Except this is a case where the science is actually settled. We can actually measure this. And the savanna systems put more carbon in the soil than the pure forest systems. 
That doesn't mean the pure forest system should all be replaced with savannas. It does not mean that at all. Pure forest systems tend to exist on landforms that favor them, mountains and hills. Open plains and valleys are fed with water that is, that is infiltrated from the forested mountainsides and hills that flow through the plains that create the open plains. And then they create edge-based tree systems within them. So you have anything from glades, which is just a fairly decent opening, to widespread plains. And what maintained that before we came here and screwed it up were bison. 50 million is the, 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 the typical number given, but it's probably low. It's probably low. It was probably more like 150 million. But they migrated from Mexico <laughs> to Alaska in various forms and pieces parts like birds do today. These are big animals if you've ever paid attention. And they would graze and trample and manure and move. And graze and trample and manure and move. And graze and trample and manure and move. And why? Well, there's better grass over there. We just ate this grass. We should go there. Very simple to understand. However, what kept them from just kind of going everywhere and anywhere at all times? What made them move in giant herds that were forced together? Predators. That's the wolf. So you want to restore nature and you don't want to use livestock where man actually controls the movements because that's enslaving animals. You want to do that. Okay, I have a plan. You're not going to like it if you actually think about You might like it in theory, but if you live here, you're not going to like it in practice. We just start breeding the shit out of bison and setting them free. Oh, wait a minute. That's going to screw everything up. We're going to need a way to control. Oh, we need the wolf. So we start breeding the shit out of wolves, and we just release them everywhere across the whole United States. So they're in your backyard eating your dog and your cat. Oh, you know what we're going to have to do now? Huh. These damn things are going to migrate. You ever see what happens when a semi-truck hits a, a bull bison? It's ugly. We're going to have to stop traffic, like, all the time. We're just not going to be able to have highways anymore. Oh, you know... That pesky barbed wire fencing and stuff that, that all these people use like to like fence things in and keep things from being damaged, that all has to go because it interferes with the migration path. So if you want to go back to tribal living, get rid of all modern society, cut the population by about two-thirds, this is starting to sound like the New World Order, um, and restore the predator and the natural ruminants to the system, then we can do that. Do you think the 9 billion people in the world want to get on board with that? Do you think the people echoing uh, the, the, the whole eco-conservatism of, oh my God, we can't, we can't have animals, we can't have animals, do you think they want to do that? Do you think they want Fluffy, their little dog, eaten by a wolf in their backyard, let alone their kids? Because that's the world you live in. Now, I'm okay in that world. I'm totally, I, I would love to have a time machine and go back to that world and live in it. Most of, us, most of the people in this world do not. I will settle for the next best thing. Let's restore the ecosystem. And yes, you can put people on a small plot of land and they can do things without animals in a very small area per human. And it is a lot of work. Go ahead and show me the restoration of a million acres doing that. Go ahead, show me it happened. Show me anywhere it's ever happened. And if you show me anything where animals weren't intentionally used in the system, you're going to show me the restoration of a forest-based mountainous system. 
like the upper parts of the Lus Plateau project in China. But if you come down from there, you'll see basically sustainable forms of agriculture, but you'll see lots of uses of livestock, but the livestock is now controlled. And, and this, the reason for this is simple. For these ecosystems to be restored, there has to be plains. There has to be open grasslands. That's what they are supposed to be. That's what the earth evolved them to be. And if you grow a grassland and you take out ruminants, when the grass dies, over 85% of it oxidizes, does not contribute to the soil, and burns off into the atmosphere. And all the carbon that that plant held goes back into the atmosphere where you said you didn't want it. Right? And I'm not a big global warming proponent, but if you want to make the case to me that carbon doesn't belong in soil, I say you don't understand soil. So how can I get that grass to put its organic matter, all that carbon is sequestered, into the soil? The only way to do that is the grass must be chopped up, trampled down, made wet, kept warm, and put in contact with the earth. Not because I think so, not because it fits my worldview, because biochemistry, that's why. I have no other way to get it to happen. I need a machine to do that. Right? I need a machine that can chop up grass, take about one third of it and chop it up, make it wet, keep it, you know, around 100 degrees Fahrenheit for about 48 hours, and then put it in direct contact with the soil, and then take about one third of the remaining grass and fold it over onto that smash it down into the soil, and leave about one-third of the grass. That's what I have to have. There is, that is the only way to restore that ecosystem. You know what does that? A cow, a pig, a bison. And if we want to bring back bison, we, you don't have to exclude that. I think that it would be a great idea for the average person that's a red meat eater to switch their consumption from cattle to bison. I think it's a great idea. But you're still going to have to manage them in a paddock shift, savannic mimic ecosystem to restore this land. And there's no other way. And if anybody has a problem with that, you have a problem with that for emotional reasons. You do not have a problem with that for logical reasons, because to have a problem with it for logical reasons. I've given you a solution, and I'm giving you a solution that I can show you hundreds of examples of it being done and it working. I can show you places like Mark Shepard took 100 acres in northern Wisconsin and has four different species of frogs living in his little ponds on there now that were thought to be extinct in the state. And that's just one little example. I can show you hundreds, if not thousands of places that this has been used and worked. For you to counter that argument effectively with logic instead of emotions, the only thing you can do is say, here's an example where you're wrong, Because they did it. I am open to being wrong. You will have to show me. Okay? I'm not from Missouri, but you still have to show me. You're going to have to show me a place that a broad-scale, plains-based ecosystem that was damaged heavily by humans was restored by humans without ruminants. Go ahead. I'm done with this. Let's move on. Let's talk about normalcy. This was the other one that kind of got me like, what the hell are you even doing being part of the Greater Reset? Seriously. Normal will never return. It's going to be new normal. For it's like, do you even know what we're trying to teach you? And what I said in the chat this today when I was getting ready to do the show, normalcy is a choice. 
And this person said, well, you, you just need to get out of your bubble. You're in your bubble. You're ignoring people suffering all over the world. And I said suffering's a choice. Thriving's a choice and suffering's a choice. See, for you to say, you have too much money. Well, you know, I didn't always have so much money. For those that maybe, maybe found me last night through that event or new to the show just in general, we get new people every day, and you don't know my backstory, I am the son of a bootleg coal miner from Pennsylvania. You don't go much more down the social strata than that. Some of you will have to look up bootleg coal miner to even know what it means. I'm not going to go there today. I grew up in a house that was built in the 1860s. The bedroom I slept in, upstairs in it, you literally were afraid when you walked in until you got used to it because the backside of the bedroom, this is upstairs, by the way, sloped at about 10 degrees down. When you stood in the doorway and looked at the back corner, the back corner was probably about 8 inches lower than the doorway. On a, on a desolate little piece of land in front of a stripping hole which is the, the way they mine coal where they destroy an ecosystem. I grew up there. I never went to college. My first job, I worked in a turkey farm, flushing turkey heads through a trough on a concrete floor and scrubbing the floor of the kill floor after it was done. And I made minimum wage to do that. Actually, I made about a dollar over minimum wage to do that. I guess they paid me that extra buck because of my white privilege, right? That's where I come from in this. I have no time for this shit, Well, but you had it better. No, I didn't. I made it better. If there is a bubble around my life, it is a bubble that I constructed, and my, my message is not, oh, look how good I am. My message is, I suck. I'm not that good. There's a lot of advantages I didn't have. I'm an obstinate asshole. I get set in my ways. I do dumb things on occasion because I'm sure I'm right when I'm wrong. I'm loyal to a fault, meaning I've stood by people I shouldn't have until it's hurt me. And I always still will, because I'd rather be loyal and be wrong than be disloyal and be wrong. So I've got a huge amount of the deck stacked against me, and I still manage to do this type of life for myself. So bullshit that you can't. It's a choice. That doesn't mean it will be easy. It wasn't easy for me. But you're going to have to do it or choose not to do it. And this is the part where I put out the, the, the episode of Miyagi Mornings yesterday on teachers And when the teacher is ready, the student will appear. I will honor, as a teacher and a leader, I will honor your choice. I will fully honor you. If you want to stay miserable, I will honor your choice, and I will not force you to do otherwise. I will point out you don't have to, and if that makes you angry, it's because you know it's true, and I'm removing your excuse, and now you're angry. But I will lead versus rule. Rulers love making people comfortable in their misery. Rulers love class warfare. Rulers love saying, well, what about the poor person over here? And to the point where when rulers do it long enough, those being ruled use the same excuse. Well, maybe I could, but what about these poor people suffering over here? You tell me how you control those people. You tell me how you get to make decisions for those people. Oh, you don't? Who do you get to make decisions for? You? Okay, then why don't you get off your ass? And start building, if you want to call it a bubble, build your own bubble. And maybe some of those people over there will go, gee, if they can do it, I can do it. I sent these people in this chat the, uh, the video of Brad Lancaster transforming a rundown neighborhood in Tucson. I wonder how many of them will watch it. 
a concrete saw and tree seeds, and he transformed the whole neighborhood because he chose to. I'll save my thoughts on that a little bit for our last segment today about anarchism and agorism. But normalcy is a choice, and suffering is a choice. And I know what someone's going to say. When we need about the patient gets cancer, they're going to suffer, and they, that's not a choice. You know what? Do you have cancer? No, then shut up. We're not talking about that kind of suffering. That's not what we were discussing. I understand that bad shit happens to people. And sometimes it is overwhelming bad shit. But most of the things people sit around bitching about, some guy with cancer is working harder than them to make his life better. So whenever somebody's like, well, what about this? Do you have that? No, then shut up. I'm sorry, because now you're just using somebody else that you do not control to make an excuse for why you're not acting. And I'm telling you, the people that make the biggest excuses are, the government won't let me. And I could remove every law that you say is in your way, and most of those people would still be where they are a year from now. And they'd have a new excuse. Normalcy, my friends, is a choice. My life is as normal today as it was two years ago. It hurts me that I've watched so many people in my nation allow it to be otherwise for themselves. It bothers me. It angers me. It's not that I don't care. It's that I also accept that I can't do anything for those people other than demonstrate to them that they don't have to live that way. We can end this tomorrow morning if about half the people would decide I'm done. And more than half the people are ready to, but they won't do it. They won't do it. They won't take off the masks. They won't open their businesses. They're afraid. Okay, that sucks. I get it. But I do not get to put a gun to your head and say, you, Bill, will open your business. You, Tom, will take off your mask. Because then I'm no better than the rulers that those people have chosen to cower to. I will not use force. I have to honor your choice even if your choice makes me think you're a sheep. If you want to be a sheep, you get to be a sheep. And if you're a sheep, you will live in fear of the wolf. It's up to you. I will lead, and leaders do not look back to see who's following. They just go. And my message to you isn't follow me. It's freaking get leading in your life. You lead. You stop worrying about somebody else somewhere else that you don't even know. Oh, well, what about them? I don't know. My message to them is the same as it is to you. Which one of you will get up and move first? Leaders don't just move. Leaders don't just do. Leaders don't just make sure that they're doing the best they can for the people that follow them, but also say, hey, if you're not coming, bye. You know what you have to do to be a leader? You have to go first. You have to go first. That brings me to going from sheep to prepared. That's not my word. I think it was actually suburbanite sheep to prepared. Okay? The journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. That's the, that's the old uh, proverb. And it's more than a proverb, it's the truth. And it's the same reason when somebody says, you know what, Jack? I want to make $100,000 a year as an entrepreneur. How do I do that? My first statement is, let's figure out how to make you 100 bucks. And usually, usually people are very, very unhappy with that response. Hundred bucks? I go work at Walmart for a day and make a hundred bucks. Then maybe you should. Then they're really mad. 
Well, do you have a hundred bucks? Yeah. Okay. How'd you get it? A word for it. Okay. So now you want to be an entrepreneur? Yeah. Okay. So now we need to make you a hundred dollars. Well, I want to make a hundred thousand a year. Okay. So you, how much have you made so far? Zero. Okay. Think about this. How can you make a hundred thousand this year if you don't first make a hundred? You can't. It's impossible. Can't be done. Well, if you, I mean, if your first win, let's call it, is two hundred bucks, you still made a hundred within that. You're not going to go out of the gate as an entrepreneur, do one thing and make a hundred hundred thousand dollar profit, especially with the minimal to, to little to no financial investment. Most people asking that type of question want to, to start out with, right? They, they don't have money to invest, maybe a little bit, but what they have is a desire and sweat equity they're willing to put in. Well, it's going to take time. You're going to have to learn. So let's make a hundred dollars. Why? If we can make a hundred dollars. Then we can step back and say, how'd you do that? What did you like about the way that you did that? What didn't you like about the way that you did that? What part of what you did is most responsible for the money, and what part is least? Okay, let's lean it out, do it again. Now you made $200. And you should have made the second hundred faster than the first. Okay, now double it. Okay, that's $400. Double it again. It's $800. Double it again, sixteen hundred bucks. Whatever you did, double the effort to get up to sixteen hundred bucks. Sixteen hundred bucks in a week. <laughs> you know what? That's good money, and we're just not that far off now, are we? From your goal, uh, new math, eighty-three thousand two hundred dollars. Is that right? Fifty-two weeks. Okay, so we're just just a little bit shallow of that hundred thousand dollar goal you had. What sixteen eight? We're sixteen eight shallow of that goal. And if I would have said, hey, let's start off making like 83 grand, you would have been like, oh, okay. I can see the path. But you take that step. And then the mentality is, how did I get this far? Okay, how do I lean it out so I can do it again with less effort and double it? And you only do that a few times, and all of a sudden it really compounds. How does this apply to a person that's a sheep, a suburban sheep? Again, not my term, person asking the question, moving to prepare it. The mental shift must come first. You notice I didn't say, let's make you $100 by taking these three steps. What I said was, let's figure out how to make $100. And I'm not going to tell you jack shit about how. You're going to tell me. I don't actually mentor people anymore because this made me miserable with how hard it is to get through to people. I would rather speak to a couple hundred thousand and a few people a week do it on their own. Just they needed that last little impetus and they go try. Because that's what you would do if I was mentoring you anyway. You would come up with some ideas. And as long as it wasn't like, well, I'm going to go stick my penis in a beehive and smack the roof and video myself doing that and see if I can make $100 in YouTube ads, I'd be like, you know what? I think you're going to make more than $100, but I think that's a bad idea. right? Unless it's something like that, I'm going to be like, go ahead and try. Well, how? I don't know. Figure it out. And you would go try, and you'd come back. Do you have to do this with prepping? If you are in a position where you're completely unprepared to deal with any failure in your life, you have to sit down and say, okay, what is the most likely thing that could happen to me in the next two weeks that would be inconvenient, uncomfortable, and possibly damaging to my life? And you, you figure out what that is, because I don't know. I don't know. When you think, well, I could run out of food, and you go, if you're smart, you say, well, if I'm going to run out of food, should I know how much food I have? 
Like that, see, that would immediately, if that was your first thought, I need food, if you were thinking logically instead of emotionally, you would say, well, the first thing to figure out is how long could I live on the food I have? So you would inventory your food. And that would immediately tell you, well, this is where I'm weak, and of the things where I'm weak, these are the things that store really well. And you say, well, maybe I should buy more of that. And you come back to me and say, well, I, I figured out I should buy like two or three extra of these five things for the next week. Because that's what I can do. That's what I can afford to do. And I use that stuff anywhere. Oh, wow. So you're eating what you store and store what you eat? Great. That would have been my advice. But you figured it out yourself because you changed the way you thought. I said, well, go do that. And you would do it if you actually wanted to solve your problem. And then you would come back and go, well, what do I do next? And I'd say, I don't know. What do you think you do next? Do, do the same thing again. Evaluate your sit. Like now you are better suited. Are you great for food or better? I'm better. Do you want to be better or great? I want to be great. What could you do next? This thing here. Oh, okay, go do that. Come back. Yeah, I did it. Great. How do you feel? Pretty good. Are you good or great with your food? I'm good, but I'm better than good. I don't know if I'm great yet. Okay. How long can you be without food from the grocery store now? A month. Okay, is there anything in your life that you really need that you can't go a month without right now in the situation you're in? Uh, water. Oh, huh, okay. Do you have a magical device that delivers water to you 24-7 right now? Yeah, my faucet, but I can't be sure it will be there. Yeah, but it works now, right? Yeah. Okay, put those two things together. Put two and two together, get four, and figure out what to do next. You'd be like, you know what I should do? I don't know. What should you do? I should get some, some containers and clean them out and fill them up with water while the water works. Yeah, why don't you do that? And he would do that, and you'd come back and you go, I have water now. Is it enough? I don't know. Why don't you figure out how much you use? I have an idea. Why don't you, for the next couple days, use the water you stored and see how long it lasts you? <sighs> okay. Now that means you got to, like, I don't know, put some tape around the, the faucet or something so you can't use it. So when you go to use it, because you'll, if you've ever been where you're like, your water's off, tell me you don't walk by the sink and turn it on. And be like, oh, yeah. So you got to, like, Put some tape around the handles or something to remind you that you can't use it. And, well, what do I do if it runs out? What do you think you do if it runs out? Well, I go back to using the faucet while it works. Oh, okay. Fill the jugs back up? Yeah. Okay, why don't you just figure out how long you got? You know, it only lasted two days when I did that. Okay, is that enough? I don't feel like it is. Okay. Do you have more room, more space? Can you do this safely without, like, caving your floor in? Yeah, okay, why don't you do that? You see how simple it is? And this is pattern recognition. It's how you build a business. It's how you build a homestead. It's how you get prepared. And it starts with the mental shift of I'm going to figure out a thing. I'm going to do the thing. I'm going to reevaluate. And I'm going to figure out what to do next based on the feedback from the first try. You want me to make it easier? I can't. You want me to make magic where it's a, a way to do it without the work? Can't. You can't go to emergency essentials and buy a, a week-long support system and actually fix the problem. Most of what you have you'll never use and you won't need. So there you go. Let's move on from there. My favorite methods to catch fish for food, sport, and survival. I added the end survival part. Um, this is actually... A big it depends. And what, well, the reason I added the survival part was I have a really great friend in Florida. I only see him about once, well, a couple times every year, because when I go, I go multiple times. And, uh, he's a fishing guy. His name is Noah, Captain Noah. No shit. I did not make that up. It's his real name. And he's a really good dude. And since I met him the first time years ago, he actually pays attention to TSP. 
And he's kind of somewhat of an entrepreneur. You might imagine as a fishing guy, he's also leveraged into real estate. But he's also kind of got a prepper mindset. And listening to me, and then what happened with COVID has made that more the case. Now, if you are a captain of a boat and you go out in the ocean, you're already thinking that way because if you're not prepared when you go to sea and this guy does some offshore stuff, uh, you're in real trouble. And then you have people respond. So you're already in the right mindset. So we've had conversations because you're out with a guy freaking like six hours sitting over a reef fishing for grouper or whatever about, you know, how we would use this resource to survive. And he's like, you know, I can't be burning the kind of gas it takes to get out here in the middle of a crisis. So I wouldn't even try it. Right. And he's like, I would just kind of like a cast net and walking along the shore with shellfish. And I could feed myself infinitely while people drove by starving. I'm like, you're exactly right. You could. And that's why when you talk about survival fishing to me, a cast net and a handful of corn, and I can have enough food in a few throws. They're going to be little fish, but they're big enough to eat. And they will supply my raw needs. Rod and reel, though, is, is, rod and reel is my favorite way to catch fish. And... What goes on as tackle is dependent upon the fish that I'm targeting in the situation that I'm in. And I actually have a really old video series where I'm beardless and fat, just to, to give you an ad advance notice, um, called Survival Fishing with Flowers. It's a four-part video series. I think it's done at 480p or something like that. It's from years ago. And there was this little park near where I lived in Arlington. And I went down there, and I had a little bit of fishing line, some parachute cord, a tiny knife, some hooks. I think that was it. Don't slay me if I'm wrong. I think that's what I took with me. What I do remember what I took with me was in a little, like a little hard shell case, like a Pelican case, but it wasn't made by Pelican. It was a cheaper knockoff one that you could fit in a pocket. And that was all I had. So I walked in and I used this, I mean like a $1 serrated edge pocket knife, like half serrated, half straight. And I cut a branch and I made a rod out of it tied a piece of uh, fish string to it and a hook, got flowers from the little meadow, used the flowers as a jig, started catching sunfish, used the sunfish, and then I didn't really want to kill those fish. Like, there was really... The, the place I was, I would eat them if I had to, but it was kind of polluted water. So if I killed them, I was only killing them to kill them. So I released them, and I also brought a hot dog, one hot dog. And once I got the, the, the fish, and so I have a sunfish, or a bluegill, a pumpkin seed, whatever you want to call it. Okay, now I would have bait for larger fish. So then I found an old water bottle, used the parachute cord, took the inner cords out, spliced them together, basically made the bottle into a, a casting reel, but instead of casting a line off the reel, cast the bottle off the reel itself, put it out as a floating rig tied to a limb line and proceeded to catch some catfish out of the same little dank creek. And then toward the end of it, I end up with a fairly large snapping turtle that I was unable to land because I didn't want to get bit and I didn't want to hurt him. If I was in a survival situation, I would have just used the line to kind of stretch his neck out and slit his throat. So, And this all took place in about an hour and a half. And so... Is that my favorite way to fish? Absolutely not. It was like 110 degrees out, and it was a miserable experience being bit by bugs. But it was putting myself in the situation. So what, is it, what does that all come down to with fishing? Appropriate technology is what we call it in permaculture. What is the situation? What are my tools? And then my favorite method for that will be how those tools most fit the situation. Give me a boat and a lake. 
You know what I want? I want a good stiff six, six and a half foot medium action rod, uh, probably spooled with braid. I want mono, uh, not mono, uh, fluorocarbon leaders, and I'm going to probably fish mostly, if I have to pick like a thing, with a slab in the range of a half ounce to a full ounce. I can vertically jig it. I can bounce it on a, on a bottom retrieve from a distance. I can retrieve it midwater. I can put that rod up overhead when there's surfacing fish. I can fish it on the surface. I can put a jig in front of it, about 18 inches in front of it, so it looks like a, a smaller fish chasing a glass minnow. Doing that, I can, I can nail doubles. There's like a, so many ways to skin this. If I go down to one of the, the little creeks around me now, which are really nice clean water creeks, limestone-based, uh, I'm going, since I know the fish that are in there are primarily going to be what we call perch here in Texas. You call them brim in Florida, sunnies in the northeast, whatever. They're, they're bluegills and, and what have you. Um, those fish I'm going to target with worms or minnows. If I bring with me a small dip net, I can catch minnows right out of that creek. That's pretty cool. The fish eat what's in the creek. I can probably flip some rocks over, but if, if I have worms available, I'll take those with me because those fish really like to eat those. If I catch a really small sunfish, I'm probably put a hook through his back and put him out there under a float because there's largemouth bass, and that's their primary prey source that they have in that water. Channel cats and larger bullheads will hit those too. So I'm always adapting what I'm doing to the situation that I'm in. Put me on the beach? You know what? I want a couple pieces of PVC pipe or some specifically made rod holders. I want to put a couple long rod lines out. I want to put larger baits on them, and I'm targeting sharks. Uh, and larger game fish. However, at the same time, I probably have a lighter action rod running lighter gear, running like sand fleas or shrimp or uh, fish bites, which is a great uh, bait that you can buy that comes in a bag, so you always have some with you. Or I'm maybe throwing my cast net catching thread thins or something like that. Like it's, I don't have a favorite, man. You're like, it's like asking Patrick Rorman to pick his favorite kid. I think he's got like ten. Or 11, I don't want, let's say like 100, that would be exaggerated. He literally has like 10 or 11 kids. Really cool dude, man. Guy that makes MT knives, right? You know, he's not going to tell you, you know, I like Micah better than, no, I mean, you're, they're your kids. When I look at fishing techniques, I like what works when I'm using it. So hopefully that's not too much of an it depends, or at least I gave you what it depends on. I think it depends is always a fair answer for someone to give as long as they then explain what that means in that context. All right, next up, how to think about reducing taxation with deductions as an entrepreneur. It depends. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So most of the time people say, I'm going to start a business so I can reduce my taxes. No, let's, let's start out with that first step thinking again. We start a business to create a going concern that's profitable, right? We're not worried about tax deductions as the motivation to why we start a business, It is absolutely true, and it should be in your mind somewhere, that by doing this, I improve my position as to how I pay taxes. I'm going to move from earn, tax, spend, to earn, spend, tax. That's true. But that's not where you come from in the beginning. You come up with a business concept. These are the things that I want to do to generate revenue and how I want to do them. And then if it's like a simple little side hustle, if it's loading ammunition for a buddy, you just freaking do it. And you don't worry about saving tax money, you just don't... You go agorist, okay? I'll leave it at that. And if you get to a point where it's, it's, it's moving enough that there's a way to take it kind of above board in the mainstream world, you're going to pay tax on that revenue or you're going to get hurt. You're also going to need income to participate in parts of the economy. So I've always said if you want to be a gray market agorist, 
It's great to have a white market business to go along with it. One of the guys that was a good friend of my father's back in PA owned an ice cream shop. He paid tax on all the money he made out of the ice cream shop, but he made more money out of the back of the ice cream shop. Not anything illegal. It was things like he flipped cars. He had like cars parked in a little lot behind him. They're for sale. Right? You figure out where to go with it from there. But on the, the part that you're paying tax on revenue, you then, well, the first thing you do is you talk to at least a CPA. And if it's going to be a big enough business, this is when you consult a tax attorney. And you say, what structure should I use to do this? And you don't necessarily do what they say. What structure should I use to do this and why? And what is my, what is my second option? You always want at least two options. And if they want to say, but what I would do is, that's great. I love your commitment to that. What would you do if you couldn't do that? Right? And that way you can then make an informed decision. You know your risk tolerance, et cetera, better than they do. And you also know your budget. Like, if the way they say you should, it's going to cost you 10 grand to go in business, and you don't have 10 grand to go into business. And their secondary option is going to cost you about two. It's not as good. Well, I understand it's not as good, but you can do that. You either don't go into business or you take the other option, right? So that's the, that's the starting point. Once you're operating, this is where we really need to move to conversations with the CPA or our own understanding of tax law or both. Because a lot of times your CPA will take the thing that you bring them and say, well, I think I can deduct this and go, yes, you can, but if you do this other thing, you can deduct it too. Or here's two different ways we can take this deduction. You thought you needed to depreciate this asset, but because of blah, 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 it qualifies for accelerated depreciation. For me, my big win from my accountant recently was when the Trump tax code came in. And, well, you can't deduct your property taxes and, and your state income tax, or in my case, sales tax anymore. Uh, you, know, you don't itemize that out. You, get a, a, you double the standard deduction. And when we did the math, the double standard deduction was higher than if we did it that way. But then she backfed all the parts she could into the home office expense. I would have never thought of that. So you get the business running, and then you take all the things that are obvious business expenses, and then you take everything on the periphery, and you run that by your accountant. And then the two of you converse about, well, what else could we do? And if you run the, your business right, almost every time you go out to eat, it should be 50% deductible. Almost. Not always. Almost. What you should, all you should have to do is be able to look at what the tax code says, what your accountant says, the deduction you're claiming, and how would I explain this if I had to? How would I justify this if I had to? And then, okay, now that I say I would justify that, how would my tax attorney respond to that or my CPA in a representation and an audit if it even happens? And understand that if you make under $200,000 a year, right? Now, if you are a business owner, your business does a million dollars a year and you pay yourself $200,000, this is different. If you do about $200,000 a year, though, your odds of being audited are less than a percent of a percent. As your income goes up, your odds of being audited go up with it. Now, that doesn't, auditing and being caught for cheating are different. Auditing is, there's some things here that we just want to know more about. We need you to prove this, or we're not sure, some, some red flags or what have you, right? When you don't report revenue that they find, they just send, they don't audit you, they just send you a freaking bill with taxes and penalties added onto it. That's where you don't want that to happen.
So this is a conversation with the, the tax attorney and CPA, but that's how to think about it. How do you turn the things you would do anyway into business expenses? And you can't do everything, but you can do a lot. And I'm right back to this fact. And poor people, when I say poor, I mean people that don't have money. I don't necessarily mean people that don't have millions. People that are always looking for money and people that always want the rich to pay more and think the poor people that don't pay taxes should get another tax cut even though they already don't pay any in the end, right? They never understand this. The tax code is only 10% of what you have to do and it's 90% how to get out of it. So if you want to know how you get out of it, you have to look at your life and your business compared to that 90%. I can't tell you what to do because I don't run your business. And I'm not in the, in, in the market to run anybody's business. All right, next up, finding the right dog for your family, something totally different. Uh, it depends. <laughs> I'm just going to wear that out today, aren't I? Uh, not that I don't always do so. Okay, so I think when we're looking at a, like, what dog do we get, the first thing to do is take a motion and throw it out the window. We can go get it later. It's laying just a few feet outside the window. We can go get our emotions in, in, in a little bit. And we have to ask ourselves a few things. How big is our home? Do we have a yard? What are the weaknesses in the yard as to the dog? You know, I've had people, they want to grow a garden. I go over to their house. They have a very small backyard. And almost no grass is growing. Because they have two great big Labradors running around in the backyard. And there's an absolute path all the way around the fence where the other dogs on the backside and those dogs fence fight all the time. So you're not going to have a garden back here. You have to get rid of your dogs or have a garden. And I don't want you to get rid of your dogs. You're already in that situation. You're not choosing a dog. So you need to, like, okay, what is the impact that this animal is going to have on my land? What is the impact they're going to have on my house? How much time do I have to spend with the animal? See, I look at buying a dog is acquiring a friend who's going to depend on you for everything. And you love that friend so much, you're okay with the deal. They're going to give you so much more than you give them back with loyalty. But they can't feed themselves. They can't give themselves water. They can't walk themselves. And this is the big thing. They can't love themselves. They have more love. A dog has more love than any human can ever hope to have. And they want to give it to humans. But they need it back. So the first question is, should you even have one? Because if you're not willing for, to have that relationship, you provide all the food, the housing, and the care, and abundant love, and all you get back is love. And if that deal's not more than enough for you, you're not a dog person. Maybe you're a cat person. I don't know. And then you have to think, okay, do I have kids? Okay, how do, how do my kids react with animals? A lot of people think I'll get a little dog because I'm worried about them biting you know, the kids. Little dogs, really little dogs, chihuahuas and shit, tend to be more nippy and bitey because they get kind of a complex. I'm not saying you shouldn't have them. I'm just saying, like, don't think that that means they won't bite. All dogs can bite. My friends have, what is it called? But Sean, I think, is the dog, little mop dog. And it was in a fight with another dog, and one of their friends tried to separate him, and one bite almost took his finger off. So much for little dogs, right? dog is a canine. Their teeth are made to rip and tear flesh and crush bone. That doesn't mean don't have one. You guys know me. I have big dogs, but I have space. 
how are you as a trainer? If you're not experienced as a dog trainer, either you need to enroll that dog with a good co-trainer that will train your dog and train you to train dogs, or you want a dog that's already started or has a predisposition. Like, is this not a breed issue? I can go look at three dogs that are from the same litter at three months of age and go, this one's going to be high-strung and need really firm discipline. This one's a pleaser. And they're all pleasers, by the way, but this one's a natural pleaser. This one is here to please, and this is a beta. This dog will always be submissive. That submissive dog, you know one of the best things you can do with that submissive dog is bring it into a household with, a, with an alpha. They'll get along fine. There won't be any conflicts. So you already have a dog? What's that dog like? How does that dog interact with other dogs? You know, you need to bring a dog into a house, you got kind of an alpha male, bring a female and it's a beta. You're not going to have any problems. Oh, it's a chick, all right, yeah, this party, dad, thank you. Serious, you know, make sure if you don't want puppies, you've taken care of that with snip, snip, clip, clip, right? But it's, it's very difficult for me to answer this question other than these generalities because I don't know your situation. But I also will tell you this. If it's not emotion, there are dogs that you look at the dog and you go, that's my dog. The universe has ordained that this dog and I are to be companions. Now, it's easy to look at a puppy, oh, he's so cute, and think that. And if you've never experienced it, I don't know that I can explain it to you. But I do believe when you really do experience it, you'll know. I've had it twice in my life, and I feel like they're both incredible gifts. Once was my Siberian Husky named Lakota, who I had when this show started many years ago, and has been gone for many years. We were at a Pets... Both of these were at, like, Pet Smarts or Petco's. I think we were at a Pet Smart for both of them. We were at a Pet Smart. We walked out, and there were several dogs there, and they were all from an organization called the American Eskimo Dog Rescue Society. So they were all Husky-type dogs. Or, uh, those white ones, I can't think of what they're called. American Eskimos, right? And... Uh, I looked at Lakota and I went, that's my dog. And I walked over to him and it was an instant bond. It was instantaneous. And this is a high-strung dog and he immediately settled down. And I told him to sit and the guy goes, he doesn't do that. And the dog sat down. And I'm like, we need to take him home. And the next one was Charlie, who I have now. And I walked in and he was a puppy and he was in a cage. And I looked at him and said, that's my dog. If you know that's real, never turn it down. Because as a dog owner, I can tell you, to get two of them in a lifetime, I don't know that it'll ever happen again. It's not that I'm not open to it. But I don't know that it ever will. Because it can't be faked. I had just put a, put a dog to sleep when we got Charlie. Way closer than you would usually ever get another dog. Now, the dog I had put to sleep was a dog named Black. He was really my son's dog. He wasn't my dog. But I was still, I mean, I had the dog 16 years. And uh, I was like, come on. You just feel that way because this fixes a hole that you have. It might be true. doesn't mean it's not true. doesn't mean it doesn't, it's not right. So I walked around and looked at every other dog in that shelter. And I'm like, not my dog. And I came back to him and I said, that's my dog. 
And I would say, unless there's something psychologically wrong with the animal where it's like really going to be a problem and you don't have the tools necessary to deal with that, if you feel that, that is more important. That is more important. And, and uh, this dog, Charlie, I've had more than one friend say the dog is part human. And I can't explain that universal link, but I can tell you it's there. And I can tell you it's more valuable than a breed. And this is why I have a dog that's half pit bull and half bird dog that I can trust herding ducks and chasing chickens off a porch that won't hurt them. Because that bond is there, and that made it able for me, even as a, as a fairly experienced dog trainer, to train that dog beyond what he should be capable of by his in, intrinsic characteristics. If you have that bond, and if you don't have it, you seek it. You seek to develop it, even with an animal that is just not immediately there. You can still develop it. Once you have that bond, that dog will do whatever you want. Anything you ask that dog to do, he'll do. The only trick is to make him understand what you're asking him to do. Next up, how to know you're looking at a Fnord before you have how to see a Fnord. What's Fnord? A Fnord is a piece of misinformation in plain sight. I first discovered it in a series called the Illuminatus Trilogy. It's really one book, but it's three books put together in one book. I don't think they can be bought separately, even though it's called the Illuminatus Trilogy. It's not like they wrote the three books and then they made the combined thing. It doesn't work that way. Um, this is a very trippy book. I mean, I think that both of the authors were on drugs when they wrote it. It moves back and forth through time. It has science fiction components in it, but every conspiracy that's ever existed up until about the mid-'80s is in the book. Every conspiracy theory. And tons of science fiction shows came from the book. Like the one, I think it was called Sequest with the talking dolphin. It was played out a little bit differently, but it's, it's Hagbird, Selene, and I don't remember the dolphin's name. But it's in the book. And the book is all about how we are psychologically controlled. And if you know the other works of Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson, <laughs> yeah. But Fenord is a term that comes from a, an earlier work called Principia Discordia that I won't get into today. And it is the concept that we are constantly lied to by government and media. And the organizations that we form to fight government and media are usually cogs and tools of a machine that works for government and media. And the two organizations that you think are diametrically opposed to each other are being used by the same puppet masters at the top to advance the goal that they both think they're fighting against. Huh? Does that... Yeah, if you haven't read it, you should. But throughout it, there's people that become woke, not in the modern SJW way, but actually woke... They wake up to this reality, and they run around saying, I see the Fenords, I see the Fenords, F-N-O-R-D, if you want to look it up, Fenord, F-N-O-R-D, Fenord. Actually, I'm sorry, did I say R? <laughs> yeah, because you, know, you just kind of want to say it that way. It's, it's F, yeah, F-N-O-R-D, Fenord. And um, they're all around us. And I'll give you a classic headline that always tips me off. It's probably a Fenord right from the beginning. Blah, 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 comma, experts say. It's a formula that they always follow. In fact, most of what passes for journalism today could be written by a bot. 
much of it probably is now. Because it's that formulaic. And what journalism is supposed to be is we'll examine this thing over here, we'll figure out as much as we can about it, we'll report what we know, we'll include what we don't know, and we will give valid sources that confirm the things that we know, and then maybe we'll speculate. And it doesn't matter what we want if we're a journalist, or how we feel about it, or what we want to believe. We're examining, I'm looking at a, a, a LaCroix can, right, a, a sparkling water can that I'm, I'm having a sip from every now and then to keep my throat good. And if I was reporting on it, how I feel about lemons is irrelevant to the fact there's a picture of a lemon on the can. And that particular lemon has some little pink leaves, right? And, the, and the, 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 the text is in script. If I don't like script, I don't change that. And I don't report on this can so that I can convince you that cans are evil or cans are neutral or cans are good. I report on the aspects of this can, what it's made of, where it came from, where it goes after it's disposed of. And if I speculate, I'm clear that I'm speculating. And if I end up giving you opinion in conclusion based on the speculation, the facts, the knowns and the unknowns and the sources of the can, then I am very clear that now I am issuing you an opinion. That's journalism. The way that things are done today is we want to convince people of X. How can we use this can to do that? And that means the, 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 the piece of information, whether it's video, audio, pictorial, or combination thereof, will be rife with snorts. Disinformation in plain sight. So how do you see them before you're good at seeing them? Okay, It's really simple. Assume everything's a fenord, and then try to disprove that it's a fenord. That's it. That's all you got to do. Right? I'm doubting this thing. I'm going to now try to prove that I'm wrong for doubting it. Now, you go do the job of the journalist. You seek out sources of information, not based on what you want to believe, but what is. This person said, Joe Biden did this thing, and this, that thing means this. Well, we could start out by, well, what is this thing? He signed an executive order. You could go read it. You could go read it. The actual executive, like that would be the first step, right? So I think this is a finort. Whether I like Biden or hate Biden, this thing claimed, you know, Biden has pushed the minimum wage up for an entire country. Wait a minute, that doesn't seem to make sense. That's Fenord. Now I'm going to try to prove I'm wrong. So let's go read the... Who does this affect? How does it actually work? Where, what does this actually do? Who has to pay higher wages now? Okay, of that group, how many people are actually affected? This isn't, this isn't an advocacy for what Biden did or didn't do. See, and a lot of you are already resistant to what I'm saying. You are being controlled by Fenords. Because I haven't actually given you an answer to any of the questions. I don't even know. I don't give the square root of F all anymore. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I control my own life. I do not control what executive orders Joe Biden signs or doesn't sign. I know I'm not going to lose my mind about any of them. Because mostly I'm going to do what I want to do anyway. We'll save that for the last bullet point today. But if, if, if me saying those, like, well, he's, he's on Biden's side. Okay, you're being controlled by Fnord. I didn't give you an answer to anything. I've said that you take whatever's claimed, you doubt it, and then try to disprove your doubt. That's the only way. And what will happen is you'll be able to see, you do that a few times, 
and 99 times out of 100, you'll be the character in the book. I see the Fenords. You will see the bullshit a mile away, and you'll smell it before you see it. Next up. How do fermented foods fit in with keto, keto, keto and paleo, etc.? Okay. This is another one of those things where everybody knows that fermented foods are good. Wait a minute. Fermented what? Cherries or cabbage? Fermenting a cherry doesn't make it not a cherry. Fermenting a strawberry does not make it not a strawberry. Fermenting a carrot doesn't make it not a carrot. Fermenting a piece of cabbage doesn't make it not a piece of cabbage. The food is what the food was before you fermented it, but now it's been transformed in taste, texture, longevity, and yes, you've added that wonderful beneficial bacteria to it. And I think fermented foods are a great idea. I love them. If you're on a keto diet and you're eating a fermented food, you treat it like any other food that you would consume. How many carbohydrates are in this serving of this food and how does that relate to how much I've eaten today? How does it relate in relationship to my macros, my fat, carbohydrates, and protein? It's, it's, it's literally no different than any other food from a macronutrient standpoint. If you want the beneficial bacteria and you want to maintain a low-carbohydrate intake, you ferment low-carbohydrate vegetables, like cabbage. Does that mean you can eat as much cabbage as you want? Mm, sort of. I mean, I don't know what. See, I don't know what you're really capable of. How big a giant cabbage fart bomb you want to blast out two days from now? I don't really know. But in general, I would say most people. And if you're keto, you're eating a lot of meats and fats. So if we're talking about some really delicious, rich sausage or fatty pork, and we're, we're combining that with sauerkraut, you probably can have as much sauerkraut as you want because you're not going to eat that much. If you're some freak that can sit down and eat an entire crock of sauerkraut, no. First of all, you're never going to balance out your macros. And on top of it, you're, you're going to get an excessive amount of carbohydrate, even with something like cabbage. Okay. Now, keto and paleo are not the same thing. If you're living a paleo diet lifestyle, whatever you've set for your regiment, we're back to... It doesn't change the macronutrient profile of what you're looking at by fermenting it, sort of. In some foods, the longer you ferment it, since the fermentation attacks the carbohydrate and consumes it, it can lower carbohydrates. But you need to check the numbers if you're concerned. If you're paleo from a standpoint of I eat vegetables and meat and no processed foods, and I eat eggs and maybe limited dairy, and I don't really watch my macronutrients, and you're happy with that lifestyle, then fermented food is wonderful as long as it fits what you would eat. It's not magic. It's not magic. It's, I think it's beneficial. I think the science says it's beneficial. I think the biochemistry says it's beneficial. But let's, let's look at it this way. If you were eating cherry pie, Right? Sticky, gooey cherry pie. It would be bad for you. I think we would all agree. It's too much sugar, sugar, fat, and carb together. Now we really have something, right? Uh, uh, that's probably detrimental to our health. If you ate it with a multivitamin, would it be more nutritious? Yeah. Would it be better for you, relatively speaking? Sure. 
it's still cherry pie. It's still a dessert. It's still something that should be consumed in extreme moderation as a reward for good behavior. Make sense? That's how, that's how, that's how fermented foods are. Though I'm not equating fermented carrots with cherry pie. They are still very high in sugar. So if somebody said, I really like the flavor of fermented carrot, I would say then make a good slaw with a small amount of shaved carrot in it. That would be my compromise for you then. All right. Last, I just want to kind of finish up today with why anarchism and agorism or agorism, and my understanding is the proper pronunciation is agorism or agorist, but that Samuel Conklin said agorist and agorism. So take your pick and argue with history and syntax however you want. I don't care. Um, but I believe that anarchism, agorism, voluntarism, etc. always win in the long game. And they are always the thing that have drug us toward liberty and away from tyranny. And I could use the, the, the revolution, right? The re the, and I would actually say it's more accurately termed the insurrection that established these states united, the original republic that we call the United States of America today. As an example, what do you think the people that led the insurrection were doing. They were breaking the law. They were defying the king. Many of them were smugglers. All of them were agorists. All of them were doing business in ways that circumvented the crown's ability to tax them. They weren't all angels. They weren't all heroes. And many of them, once the battle was won, sought to install themselves as a new form of aristocracy and to a degree succeeded... I understand that. I am with John Bush when he says a big part of the Constitution is the con in many ways. I agree with that. But it, there is no question that the resulting republic we called the States United and later called the United States was a move away from the tyranny of the caste system uh, that, that we, we called the feudal system under royals. There is no doubt about that. That the United States, as it was formed, had more freedom and liberty than the mother country it separated from. And it was led by agorists. It was led by anarchists. And I guarantee you, but they started a constitution and they had a continental congress. And, they, and I guarantee you, King George said, stop these anarchists from their bullshit. I guarantee you the word anarchist came out of his mouth way more than one time. Because they chose to act independently of the rulers. That did not mean that they did not have rules. They weren't perfect in that component. They didn't establish a libertarian utopia. They didn't recognize the rights of all men. They didn't recognize that women should have rights equal to that of men. They didn't. They were still, at least in the most meaningful action, agorists. Let's look at Brad Lancaster in Tucson, Arizona. I don't know if he would call himself an anarchist. I don't know that. I don't know one way or the other. Unfortunately, I've never had the great pleasure to meet the man and talk with him. I would love that opportunity someday. But whether he accepts that he's an anarchist or not, when the city says, Thou shalt not take thy concrete saw, and cut thyself a hole in thy curb, and draineth the water from thy road into thy tree pit, and groweth thy tree, that is illegal. And he says, You know what? I don't give a shit. I'm sure that's not the way he phrased it. He seems like a much less blunt speaker than me, right? 
But when he speaks, basically the action say, I don't give a shit. This is the right thing to do. I think this will work. I'll do it limited in case I'm wrong. But hey, I did it and it worked. I'm going to do this shit again. To the point where the city actually says, well, shit, that worked. Okay, all new developments have to do this. Now, I'm not actually a fan of the city saying that. But are we better for it? Is it better that water be harvested than shed away? It is better that it be harvested. Okay, so what would the person who believes in following the rules say as to how you get a change? Well, first thing you should do is before you complain about elected officials run for office yourself and make a change from the inside. Well, show me where that works. Right? You should go to town council meetings and tell them what you think, and then maybe they'll listen to you. Okay, go ahead. It's done. And you know what? It works. Does that mean everybody that does it will get away with it? No. Does that mean there's no risk in doing it? No. Does that mean you should always take that play and run full tilt bore with it? No. And that's not what Brad Lancaster did, is it? A couple here and there. Let's see how this works. Do it kind of like Sunday morning when nobody's paying attention. And if somebody asks, oh, uh, it was just it was that way when I got here. Uh, you have a video of like somebody doing. Like, you, do you know who did this? I, I mean, I actually wanted to thank him. I didn't know there was anything wrong with it. I don't know. Right? But when the whole like you got this town and it's just desolate, and you go to this neighborhood and it's all trees. At that point, what is the city going to do? Come in with chainsaws and cut the trees down? You think that's going to work out real well for him? Or do you think maybe the people are going to be out there kind of like that scene in Tombstone? I don't think I'm going to let you arrest us today, Behan. You don't think that, you know, like one guy saying that on Hollywood stage, that's, that's a different thing altogether. But if you don't think that actually happens, if you don't think law enforcement ever turns up at a place and says, we're going to put a stop to this, and there's sufficient numbers of people that say, oh, no, you're not. And then, you know what, screw this. When I was a kid, we used to have this party on a place called Blackwood. It was the old Blackwood Buggy Festival. There would be like 50,000, literally 50,000 people like this thing. It was like a, like, a, like a Woodstock impromptu in the woods. And there were tons of kids. I was a kid, you know, underage drinking or whatever. And the, we saw one cop in the three years that I was part of this thing. And he was a statey. And he came out, and this is back when the, they had like old box-shaped cars, you know, and a little cherry, one light in the middle. And he just comes out. And he gets up to this place, and we're all standing there. That's a cop. <laughs> we never see a cop here. Anybody call him? No? Huh? Yeah? Okay. And he's just kind of sat there. And he looks, and there's like people as far as you can see. It's one cop. Do you know what he did? Three-point turn and left. What was he going to do? Start walking around going, hey, show me your ID? No, because you're, you, we outnumber them. And when we're strategic and peaceful, what's more peaceful than growing a tree? Like, if you start burning down buildings, it's going to backfire. You're going to become one of those pieces in that system from Illuminatus where you think you're helping, but you're not. You will help install more tyranny. Peaceful insurrection is the key. Peaceful sedition is the key. Permaculture is dramatically seditious. And it's also dramatically agorist and anarchist. What about the agorism component? The free market. Go watch the video. I'll put a link today to that video I put up on Odyssey for you. He shows all these products that they're making and trading and selling to each other. Do you think they're like, hey, let me make sure this this uh, this mesquite flower that we milled 
that I, I gave my neighbor for um, for some pickles. Let me make sure that's on my 1040E, AZ, right, or my 1040A. You think? Do you really? Do you really? It's always Agoras, Agoras, Voluntaris, Anarchists that lead the way in these things because they don't wait for change. They create it. With that, we've had another great episode, I think. I'm, I'm kind of on fire from, like, I think actually all these whiners set me on fire in a good way. So please whine more. I, I put up a video recently on YouTube to get it on Odyssey. It's the easiest way. And uh, I got, like, one downvote, and I actually pinned my response to the top. I said, like, one person is ass hurt by this. More downvotes. I need more, please. And to be serious here for a minute, I really don't enjoy picking on people like that. Um I do enjoy seeing how their mind works. I, I don't think that we can approach problems with legitimate solutions until we understand the scope of the problem. In any problem that involves humans, you have the problem itself, and you have the human, the majority humans around the problems, preconceptions about what should be done. And you're going, inevitably, if those people knew how to fix it, they would have already done it. So what they believe about the problem is invariably going to be wrong. If they have any influence on it, right? Otherwise, they're just spectators, and they don't matter, right? So either they have influence, and they're failing in their attempt to fix the problem, or they have no influence, and they're not relevant to the problem. So you have the, the humans that do have influence, and you have the problem itself, And to fix the problem, you have to understand the underlying technical issue that has and how to address it. Like, here's a large-scale ecosystem that's devoid of life, that's not recovering on its own, but if we went in and we put a savanna mimic system in and began to graze the land with ruminants, we could restore it, because we did that here and it worked. And this is a similar place, a similar client, a similar area, similar fauna, Well, if it worked here, we know it'll work there. But then there's going to be people that have control or influence on the ability to implement that, and we have to correct both of them. So not only do we need to understand the technical aspects of the problem, we need to understand the mindset. Now, that's above my pay grade. It really is. What I can do is help people that tune into this show, and I know that there's people that tune in that have been deeply immersed in jackisms at this point. And you tune in, like, what's that one little thing I can take from here today and go do? And this is entertaining, and this is educational, and I like it. There's also the people tuning in, he's a jerk. And not in a good way. He's a jerk. And you can listen to him and find out why he's wrong. And I can't break through that if I don't understand your mindset. So the main reason I even engage with people that are like, you're just teasing animals or whatever. So I need to understand what you think. And sometimes I'll be soft and gentle and grandfatherly. And then sometimes today... Boom, off the top rope, because some people need soft and grandfatherly, and some people need boom off the top rope. Either way, I hope you enjoyed today's show, and make sure you tune in tomorrow. We will have an expert counsel show where you'll hear mostly from other people, not me, if you're thinking that jerk won't shut up. I will tomorrow. I'll only answer one question. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you, you can help support this show with the work that we do by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you do that, you'll help us out no matter what you eventually buy. Today's item of the day is a really cool little gadget for your kitchen. It is the King Cooker 12-slot leg and wing grill rack. Yes, we're going to grill yard birds on it, and I'm sure it can do some other things, but it is purposefully made to hang 12 chicken wings off of by the wingtips 
or hang 12 legs off of by the little nub at the end of the legs. And it allows them to cook with the hot air around them, and it is fantastic, and I'll leave it at that. I'll just tell you, it is on sale today for 47% off. Stupid cheap. How cheap? Eight bucks. Um, I guess if you have like a metal shop or something, you could easily make one. I don't know if you could make it for much less than eight bucks, though, out of stainless steel, which it's made out of. Um, but I give a whole write-up, different ways to use it, different recipes, etc. In the sh- in the notes on it today, you can find it at the survivalpodcast.com or tspaz.com. And remember, if you're on Telegram, if you're on Discord, if you are on the mail list, etc., you would already have seen that today. So if you are listening and you're not on any means of comms with us, consider you know connecting with me on MeWe, connect with me on Float, get on our Discord server, get in our Telegram group or channel. We have two things you can do on channel uh, Telegram. One is a group where everybody talks to each other, and one is a channel, right? And the channel is you just get stuff from me. But I just found a new feature on Discord. Not Discord, Telegram. You can now comment even if you're just on the channel. I'll see it. The people in the group will see it. You can look at the discussion, but you'll only engage in it if you choose to be in the group. So I think that's pretty cool, too, because you can tell me when you think I'm being a jerk, which is probably frequently. But, you know, if I wasn't, you probably also wouldn't tune in. All right, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day today. And today's song is by a band that I think is highly underrated uh three doors down and of course i think they're probably really famous simply from the song that ended up being in a geico commercial which is actually a better song than i think people think it is because it was in a geico commercial um this song though is called believe it and i'd actually never heard this song before this is brand new music for an old far like me because it's from 2016 it's like five years old that's like that's like five minutes ago in my world of music and i'm not going to say a lot about it it's called believe it And I didn't even know what the song of the day was until a couple seconds ago because I forgot to add it to the show notes. And I had to pause, go get the song, so that I could put it in the show. And I listened to it. Couldn't be a better song for today. You know, that's another example of synchronicity. Thanks to John Adam, who always puts together our music programming for us. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. <laughs>